Yo! Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today we have a very special guest, Brandon Quidham. Oh, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes, I got it right. I got the thumbs up. Uh, he's, just, he's a Bitcoiner all around. He has some of the best uh, pieces he's made. He's authored. Uh, one talking about the, the fourth turning and one talking about, is it magic mushrooms? Is it mushrooms? Mycelium? I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up Brandon in a second and we're gonna go down the rabbit hole. But first I wanna give a shout out to Swan Bitcoin is the best place to stack sats. They are the ones that power simply Bitcoin IRL. They also incentivize dollar cost averaging and self-custody. Go check out swanbitcoin.com today. Anyways, I wanna wanna bring up Brandon. How you doing, Brandon? Yo, 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 what's up, Nico? So what did I mess up? Because I was reading your facial expressions while I was saying all of that stuff. Oh, uh, well, I was just laughing. A lot of people who reference the Mycelium of Money article series, they always want to tie it to psychedelics. <laughs> and I do mention psychedelics in the article. Like the, the second part is kind of about culture. And there's a lot of parallels there. Um, but that's always funny to me. That's like the number one thing people remember. Yeah, I mean, because it's the I think that people have like this association to it. You know, it's like this mental association to uh, to whatever it is, I guess, in their own personal journeys. Anyways, I want to tell a quick story before before we we we, we rip this. Um, so we were at Pacific Bitcoin last week, which is literally I'm not just saying this best Bitcoin conference I went ever went to. It was just so special. The the airplane hangar and it was just not too big. So you get lost in the sauce and but it wasn't too small. It was just absolutely epic. You got to walk up to some of your favorite Bitcoiners, just have a conversation with them. And uh, one of the panels that I was on, I was on the main stage and Brandon and I were hanging out backstage and he was the one directing everything. And he goes, Nico, go. And I walk out and there's a thousand people there. And the chairs weren't ready and I had to go backstage again. Holy crap. That was embarrassing, Brandon. That's um, all my bad. Oh, man. A hundred percent my bad. Dude, that was it. Was, it was a good story. It's a good story to tell, though. Um, but I, I want to know how was how was your experience? How was your experience at Pacific Bitcoin? Yeah, man. Um, the first, the, the short answer is it was awesome. Um, that we flew the whole Swan team in more or less, and this was the first time most of us got together in person. And so, the, like the beginning of the week was a Swan corporate offsite, like rented a big house, presentations, icebreakers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we transitioned into a conference and, uh, you know, prepping for panels and there's all these side events, et cetera. And so it was extremely exhausting. The swans were working, you know, from sun up to sundown, trying to put on a happy face at all the events. And so I know I feel for the Bitcoin magazine guys, you know, you see CK running around the, the place and you try to say hello and he's just frantic. Like, I get it, bro. <laughs> um, but in terms of the conference, uh, confession, I was not excited when Corey's like, yo, we're doing a big conference. And in my head, I'm, I'm thinking, look at the roadmap, all these products, all these new hires, how can we afford this time and energy on a distraction? And, uh, yeah, halfway through the first day when everything started to click and people were saying, wow, you guys did a great job. Um, I became a firm believer. And so I, I would call it a home run and yeah. Happy we did it, dude. You guys killed it. I, I, so I've spoken to a lot of people that throw conferences, and basically the same. It's always the same message, right? The first year is a 
excuse my language, cluster F. And then, you know, and then it gets progressively better. But what was interesting is that you guys killed it from day, like the first time. And that was really, really impressive. Um, I had a whole lot of fun, dude. I can't, I can't recommend it enough for anybody. Anyways, let's pivot back to, uh, let's, let's dive into this, this topic. Bitcoin is the mycelium of money. Why is that, Brandon? I know you have a 59 minute article for anyone to read, <laughs> but it, it, is, it, it makes good conversation for a pod. For sure. Um, just to like tie off the the conferencing, quick alpha to your people, um, PacificBitcoin2023.com, where we just released a couple hundred early bird tickets. Um, the tickets would be like two, at least two times as expensive when we start actually selling them. So secure the tickets now if you want to go and you can get a full refund by July 1st because we don't have the dates figured out yet. Somewhere between September and November um yeah anyways get those tickets if you want to secure them cheap you can resell them you can get a refund so no brainer um uh, okay my ceiling of money um quick background i am not a biologist a scientist or a mycologist one who studies fungi i get that a lot of people think wow you know so much about biology you must be a scientist no um i took one biology class in college i just like the outdoors and like most bitcoiners i nerd out in whatever rabbit holes in front of me and so i just have a decade of amateur uh, studies into mycology the study of mushrooms and that predates bitcoin by many years um, i like mushrooms from many angles whether that's culinary mushrooms whether that's foraging whether that's just studying their ecology which is fascinating or psychedelics um, they're all interesting to me and when I came across Bitcoin, like most people in 2017, I was trading all the altcoins, making money, thought I was a genius. Uh, quickly in 2018, I realized I was in fact not a genius. And I watched all those uh, anonymous tokens more or less go to zero. And I started to figure out, okay, there's something here. I obviously don't know what I'm doing. And so I kind of went back into the lab and started studying again. And I sort of had to reteach myself economics from the ground up and read all the Bitcoin books at the time. And then the Lightning Network comes out and I'm looking at a graph of the Lightning Network at a meetup in Bali in like maybe May or something around 2018. And I see this graph of Lightning Network. Many people have seen it. And it looks like mycelium, which is the primary form of uh, the mushroom organism. So quick fungi 101, fungi are their own kingdom. They're not plants, they're not animals, they're totally unique. They're actually much more similar to animals and plants. Both plants and or both fungi and animals inhale oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide. Um, the, the primary difference is that fungi have external stomachs and animals have internal stomachs. And so fungi, uh, their primary form that they take is underground or inside trees. And it's, an, it's a one cell walled network underground. You can kind of think of it like roots underground, but they're really tiny roots. And those underground roots called mycelium, they connect all the trees and plants together and they literally form information and trade networks underground. And the most recent mycology studies are showing that they perform what we consider market functions underground. So some mycelium will hoard water when it rains and then wait for a drought. And then they'll resell that water to the trees when they need it most in exchange for fats and sugars, which the tree produces through photosynthesis. 
So the mushrooms mine minerals, the plants produce fats and sugars from the sun, and then there's a, a trade network underground. And back to the lightning network, that same um, network archetype that looks like my seal. And I go, whoa, 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 there's something here. I took my little scooter back to the villa in Bali where I was living at the time with my girlfriend, now wife. And I just, it just hit me. I just started scribbling, writing like crazy. And I more or less wrote the first, the first uh, part of that four part mycelium of money series that day. Um, but it took me maybe six months. So towards the end of 2018, before I felt like I could publish it, because to be honest, um, first of all, nobody knew who I was at the time. And uh, all the content I saw was Bitcoin is, uh, you know, here's an economic analysis of Bitcoin. Here's some game theory. Here's some technology, etc. And I'm like, well, I think Bitcoin might be a living organism. And so got a little Ooh. gun shy there. Um, and actually, Dan Held published a series in 2018 called Planting Bitcoin, which he used some sort of um, entry entry analogies to how Satoshi sort of like planted the seed and he watered the garden of Bitcoin, et cetera. And I was like, OK, this is well received. Let's see what happens. And he helped me sort of polish it up before he shipped it. Um, and that was the first time I ever had an article or anything go viral on Twitter before, which was just crazy. Um, yeah, so that's sort of a longer than I was anticipating preamble. Um, any comments there before I sort of describe a little bit yeah, more of the thesis? So it's actually really interesting when you said that Bitcoin is a living organism. I 100% I agree with that. Uh, the way that it acts, it, 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 it plays on human greeds to ensure its survival. And that is one of the... Like, you know, when you're first starting start to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and you, you have these eureka moments, right? You're just like, oh, my God, this thing. And then, then you know, then you have uh, like many of those. But it's interesting the way and, and I'm going to give this example because I think it's the perfect example, right? The Chinese Communist Party, they banned Bitcoin mining. And within a couple of six months, six, seven months, Bitcoin hash rate is back to all time high, no central authority, no CEO pushing that. It was just pure profit incentive alone. And it's as if the network has like co-opted human beings to make sure it lives to fight another day. And it's insane, right? And then it rewards you obviously with, you know, NGU, the incentive, the sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like a, um, uh, you know what I'm talking about? The great white shark and there's this tiny little fish that swims underneath. Um, I, I don't know what the correct... Uh, do you know it? I don't know the name. I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah. They have a symbiotic relationship. Symbiotic. Right? There we go. That's that's the thing. So I 100% agree with that. And it's interesting because Bitcoiners all... It, it, and I've said this many times. You, you always end up coming to a very similar conclusion. But everyone hits it from a very different angle but it all kind of comes together at the end. I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, I totally agree. And to be fair, I didn't come up with the idea that Bitcoin's a living organism. Actually, Ralph Merkel from like Merkle Tree Cryptography, he was the first one who ever published about this. I think it was 2016, maybe. And he was talking about DAOs. And his quote is something like, Bitcoin is the first example of a new form of life. It lives because anyone anywhere can run a copy of its code. Um, it lives because the copies are always talking to each other. It pays us to keep it alive, et cetera. And so I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Gigi has written about this since, excuse me, Tomer has written about this. And so 
your point about many people finding the same conclusion through Bitcoin is so true. Um, this happens over and over and over again. And you could even say that the, the people trying to figure out what this thing is are also a, power, a part of the meta organism that is Bitcoin, right? We're trying to explain it. Our ideas bump into each other. I don't know where my ideas start and where yours pick up. And they seem to like travel through all of us trying to figure this thing out. Uh, and so I think that's an important part. And with regards to its architecture, I think I, the, the unique element I brought here is that I, I kind of view it as a decentralized network archetype. And this is the form that that mycelium takes that we're describing with the trade underground, right? There's no central processing unit of mycelium. It's really more like millions of little different individuals that work together to form a network, right? And, and Bitcoin's the same way. Um, we collectively run nodes uh, we gossip through the network, we route transactions, we communicate, developers change the code, we update it on our nodes, right? And together, the sum of all those parts is actually what creates the network. And if you cut the mycelium network in half, um, you just have two networks now, right? You fork Bitcoin, there's two networks. There's no central part to reinforce that. And it also learns, right? From the mycelium example, Let's say there's an uh, underground attacker, some bacteria or some other fungus is starting to attack the network. Um, information travels through the network to specialized mushroom cells. I'm going to call them mushroom scientists, um, which pisses off the actual mycologist. But if, anyways, information travels through the network. The mushroom scientists literally create a new custom enzyme um, that's never been created before. Oh, looks like uh, Brandon might be having some connection issues. Opti, jump in while Brandon get, comes back. Well, it was just about to get real, real it, spicy. It was getting so good. Oh, man, it was getting so good. Oh, dude. Um, yeah, no, he was talking about, and it's just interesting because it, it, in... Oh, there we go. Uh, You're back. All right. Oh no! Did I did I lose you guys? Yeah, but you're back. All right, man. You were you were literally about to hit the home run. <laughs> oh man, let me nuke my phone internet just first. Okay. Um, do you know where I left it off, left off there? Uh, where did you, man? You were saying so many good things. <laughs> it's hard to I, pick. I one. think you dropped off at mushroom scientists. Mushroom scientists ah, are getting okay, mad. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. So to summarize that underground the mycelial network it gets attacked, right? It's a constant biological battle underground. And when the mycelial network gets attacked, it sends information through the network to the mushroom scientists, and they literally create a new custom enzyme through chemistry. And then they ship that enzyme over to where the problem is, and that enzyme deals with the attackers. And over time, that mycelial network retains all the molecules it's produced to defend itself. And it becomes better and stronger over time, right? So it learns and it becomes more anti-fragile. And that's also the reason, or like through that lens, it's it's easy to understand why fungi are the, the most well-adapted species on our planet. They've been around for billions of years. And the largest organism today is actually a mycelial network in Eastern Oregon from the honey mushroom. It's like 5,000 years old and it's literally eating an entire forest in Eastern Oregon. 
And now let's compare that to Bitcoin, right? Let's say there's a bug in the software or there's some environmental FUD, right? Information travels through the network. It finds its way to the developers or mushroom scientists. The developers produce a new software patch or enzyme, and then the developers ship it out to the nodes. We all update, take care of the problem. And like the mycelial network, the Bitcoin network learns. It responds to its environment and becomes more anti-fragile over time. Holy crap. And, and, and it's, it, I love that analogy because it, it, what else could you compare it to? Like that, that is the thing to compare it to. And the, this concept, right, of it, it, it's not, it, it, you say it in your piece, decentralized intelligence, and that's exactly what it is because it's, it, it, you would say the human beings are kind of the intelligence of it and then them kind of working together, but there is no central authority kind of dictating where should we where 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 should we go whatever it's kind of there's kind of a battle and people are like no it's this no it's that but the thing just keeps on chugging along as if none none of that exists and it just keeps providing those incentives to keep the human beings captured basically working for it totally and the only assumption we have to make here for this to be true is the fact that humans want to preserve themselves. Humans want to increase their position in life. Humans want to reproduce, right? Like the core biological desire that drives all life, that same desire, if that stays constant, then humans will have an incentive to keep Bitcoin going, right? And the more people that join the network, the stronger it is, the harder it is to change. And the longer we can assume it will live because it turns out humans like to uh, like money. We need money. It's super important. And we just so happen to have created the best money um, that humanity's ever seen. So um, I think the lifespan of Bitcoin would be measured in centuries, um, whereas previous monies, it's more on the order of decades. And we could even say Bitcoin's immortal. Um, you know, it's a, it's a bold claim, but I think there, there's at least some rational thought behind it. Um, another, another question might be like, why would it be good that Bitcoin mimics life, right? So what if it's alive? Like, why would we even want that? Um, well, one thought is that through evolutionary uh, pressures, the, the organisms uh, that are around today, they have successful strategies that allow them to, to, to survive and thrive in their unique niche. And so like the, 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 the things we see today, they're not by mistake, right? Like the hummingbirds and the, and the flowers or um, that sucker fish and the shark, right? Those are strategies that work today. And the fact that Bitcoin mimics the most successful evolutionary strategy we, we are aware of lends credibility to the idea that Bitcoin is going to be here for a long time or that strategy is a good strategy. Um, another way to look at life or living versus non-living. Um, so life is good, right? It's anti-fragile. It learns from its environment. Um, it's robust, right? Like think of an old growth forest. Um, it's more like an ecosystem and it's very hard to, to attack um, compared to, let's say, uh, fiat or something that's not alive. Um, let's think of uh, just standard wheat monocrop agriculture, right? It's really efficient. You can get a lot of yield per acre in a monocrop. However, one little problem and the whole thing goes down. Right. There's a famous case study of bananas. Um, I think this was in the 50s. And the way we produce ba bananas is we essentially just clone one species over and over and over again. 
So something like 80% of all the bananas in the world at this time were a single genetic code. And a, another fungus figured out how to consume that banana. And what happened was that one fungus ate all the banana crops in the entire world over a couple year period. And there was a massive food shortage, right? So uh, fiat or monoculture or human design or uh, not in alignment with nature, all those things are synonyms. synonyms. If we go that route, hyper-efficient, but super, super vulnerable. Um, and Bitcoin, on the other hand, is that robust uh, old growth forest that's resilient. Um, obviously, the parallel with fiat's there too, right? We hyper-engineer our economy. We try to play God and, and steer the ship um, with central banking, which fundamentally misunderstands the problem. The problem is that there's too much information. Markets are hyper-complex, and we try to manage them like, uh, like the big brains that we think we are. Um, however, fiat money gives you price stability in the short term, but it risks that, uh, that blow up period when uh, the systemic collapse always occurs, right? And Bitcoin's the opposite. There's no price stability in the short term. However, systemically, it's very stable because uh, shocks in the economy will not cause Bitcoin to break. Um, there's no way to politically capture Bitcoin and inflate it, which comes back to haunt us. So. Um, hopefully that that parallel makes sense. A hundred percent. And one of the things I, I don't know if I want to go kind of on the on on. Okay, yes, because people might find this uh, entertaining. Did you know that in Peru there's these tiny frogs that hang out with tarantulas, and the tarantulas don't eat the frogs. And the front the the frogs are right next to the tarantulas, and then the tr the frogs make sure that the tarantulas' kids don't get eaten, and then the frog eludes this chemical. To let the tarantula know, hey, this guy uh, is your friend in the in the type of instinct type level. But it, it, it kind of it reminds me of what you were saying, right? It's that like nature has figured out this way, whether it's a suckerfish and the shark, right? To it, it didn't just come out of accident. It's not that the tarantula is looking at that frog is like, look, that's lunch. No, it's just that it's a mutually it's a mutually beneficial relationship. And I kind of want to tie this in with something that you said in your article, right? It says mycelium has no central point of fit, no central point of control. Any individual part can be removed, but the system as a whole survives. And that reminds me of one of Satoshi's quote, right? Where he says, governments are very good at, at shutting down uh, centralized entities, but decentralized entities, um, have been, you know, holding their own. I think he, he was referencing Tor in the, in, in that quote specifically. Um, but it's funny watching governments kind of enter this bargaining phase right now where they don't fully understand that their ability to shut things down the way that they've been used that they've been used to doing so um, is gone. And, you know, having a monopoly on violence here isn't going to be as beneficial as it was in the past. What would you say about that statement? So you're saying that central banks are losing control of the money supply. Is that kind of where you're going with that or? No, I'm going with, so, you know, the White House report, right? The digital assets framework, right? You know, the hostility towards Bitcoin. You have, you know, the the European Union, right? Trying to ban self-custody, you know, tried trying to KYC wallets, right? And the point that I'm trying to make, Brandon, is that their usual ways of cutting off the metaphor the metaphorical head doesn't work here but it's just it's 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 really nice to see them trying 
It's it's kind of yes, 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 a hundred hundred percent, right? Um, they're approaching this like um, another country, another business, something with a leader, something where you can regulate it, right? And that fundamentally misunderstands what Bitcoin is. Um, you could say Bitcoin's an idea. How are you going to shut down an idea? You could say uh, Bitcoin's a mycelium of money. Well, you cut the head off. What happens now? There's two or three or four or ten thousand. So I think that's a really good analogy. Um, I think another analogy here, you know, I love analogies. Um, there, I have this uh, unwritten essay, which I'll just describe a little bit right now, which is looking at Bitcoin through the Apache Native Americans. And the Apache were mostly settled in the southwest of the U.S. They were kind of like the Dothraki, if you remember from Game of Thrones. So think horse tribe, um, very egalitarian. They just pick a leader, whoever they, whoever's the strongest guy, they just follow them pretty much. And if there's a disagreement between two leaders, they just fracture and they go off and do their own thing. And this type of inefficient, but also uh, anti-fragile system survived for a very long time. So there was about a hundred year war with Mexico where Mexico could not stop the Apache. They gave up. And then the Americans essentially moved westward. They interacted with the Apache. They couldn't stop them, right? They walked right in, uh, to your point. They walked right in. They would kill the leader of the Apache. And they're like, all right, good, we're done here. And then they would leave. And then they would realize, well, the Apache, are they don't care at all about their leaders. They just multiply. They're everywhere. We can't stop them. And it went on for decades. And, okay, so what does that tell us? Just like Bitcoin, um, you can't approach it head on, right? So... They have to cut the, the state, uh, both trying to attack the Apache and trying to attack Bitcoin. They have to be more creative than that. They have to do some sort of um, social attack or corrupt us from the inside. Right. And so what happened with the Apache? Finally, the U.S. got smart and they realized they're not dealing with a normal org. So they show up and they say, hey, Apache leader, here's a hundred head of cattle. Uh, which would be considered a very valuable offering. And they said, we're just going to give this to you. You're the leader. Why don't you figure out how to distribute this wealth amongst your people? Then what happened? Well, this nomadic tribe who's not used to material possessions, they all of a sudden got all this wealth and they became corrupt. So that the Apache protocol, the decentralized Apache protocol could not withstand uh, becoming rich. It essentially <laughs> corrupted them from the inside out. And then they, they broke down and were instantly uh, shattered once they broke protocol. So I think we need to be careful as Bitcoiners for that same type of attack, right? If we sacrifice the principles of Bitcoin in exchange for number go up, then we might end up with a, a decade of riches and then we totally give up and Bitcoin's gone forever, right? And so I think that's an important reminder. Um, keep an eye out for the social attack um, stick to the principles, think long-term, right? All of those would be lessons to take here. So it, it's clear that their last hurrah, right? Their last gasp, um, and this is where they're putting all their eggs in that basket is central bank digital currencies. But what I've been noticing, Brandon, is that, and I've tweeted this out, I think I've screamed this from the rooftops all the time, right? Is that incentives are stronger than coercion. And I don't think central bank digital currencies will ever be able to match Bitcoin's incentives. And that's not just me saying that. Um, the In Nigeria, it's fascinating, right? You know, 30 to 35% of the youth population has adopted Bitcoin. The government in response rolled out a CBDC, the Inara, but they didn't fix the fundamental problem, right? The, what What is the reason as to why people 
opting uh, opted out of government currency in the first place is because of that 20% inflation rate. And governments, I don't think they'll ever want to give up being able to do two things with money. They'll always want to control it and they'll always want to debase it because without debasing it, they can't pay for their own bureaucracy. They can't pay for themselves. So I agree. I think that the helicopter money, social attack, here's your, you know, $100 stimulus CBDC. Um, please uh, put your iris against a scanner and, uh, you know, sell your soul and we'll capture you forever. But you, you'll get your stimmy check. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I perhaps it's my it, it. I'm naive to say that. And perhaps it's me staying in the Bitcoin echo chamber for so long. But. I just don't see them. I I don't see them very successful. Perhaps, you know, Alex Gladstein has that famous book, right? You know, financial privilege. Perhaps they might be a little bit more successful in countries that have powerful fiat currencies. But in the developing world, the world, the war is lost. They lost. They, they, there's nothing they could do. Bitcoin, Bitcoin wins. Yeah, I think that's actually an extremely good point. So a couple of things. One, I think that in the West, Central bank digital currencies on net will be very popular. And I hate that, but I think it's true. And the reason is, if you look around, people are in horrible economic conditions. And this decade is only looking to get worse. And when people are desperate, they're going to take the stimmy checks through the app, right? You want your government benefits? Get the app. You want your unemployment payouts? Get the app. You want your electricity subsidy because energy is too high? Get the app. You can't buy food? Get the app. Right. And so I think there'll be a lot of people who blindly submit um, in the in the developed. In the, sorry, in the developing world, you're spot on. The trust in institutions there is so gone on average. Some countries are different, but generally speaking, those folks do not trust their, their leaders and rightfully so. And so I think if we charted this out on a graph, it would be the higher your trust in government, the more likely you'll adopt the central bank digital currency. And, and the opposite is also true. Um, now, with regards to CBDCs versus Bitcoin, I think that this brings up a really big point, and this point is largely lost on the crypto folks, um, where Bitcoiners seem to get this. And I believe that the, the single thing we're doing here, this whole industry, all this, all this stuff going on is simply to take money away from state. And embedded in that idea is the fact that central planning is not going to work. You cannot do it, Okay. And humans believe that we can, right? History is littered with examples of smart gigabrains who um, accumulate power, capture the money printer or political power. And they essentially think that because they're smart and they have all this experience that we'll be able to steer the ship appropriately. And it's our responsibility, you know, pat ourselves on the back. But time and time again, uh, we find that it's not possible to do this. Our greed takes over. We make mistakes. Um, Right. For example, right now, if you want to get elected, you should say, hey, I'll give everyone free money if you elect me. And that temptation to promise handouts to the populace is very strong. And that cycle just results in us breaking the money over and over and over again. And Hayek called that the fatal conceit, assuming that we can centrally plan when the answer is we can't. Um, and so rather than embracing this priest class to, to steer the economy, we should be embracing markets. We should be embracing, which are markets are essentially decentralized information processing machines who can digest every single individual person's hopes, desires, needs, market conditions, weather, right? Like a, 
bad weather in China can change the copper price in Chile, which can make uh, plumbers uh, lose their job in America, right? I just made that up, but things like that do exist. And so it's important that we push that decision-making, that information processing to the, to the markets and have as light of touch as possible from the central uh, planning perspective. And money is the, the most important foundational uh, layer in that societal stack. So it's most, most important with money. Are markets perfect? No, but it's the best algorithm we have. And so back to Bitcoin, what it essentially does is it removes the ability to capture the money. And what that does is it tells, sends a signal to all the rich, powerful people who would be trying to take over the money. It says, sorry, you can't change the rules. Okay, well, I guess what are we going to do now? Well, I guess we have to actually produce if we mm -hmm. want more value in this world. Right. So it essentially de, uh, de incentivizes political capture and, and incentivizes creating value. Um, so it shifts power from the political class to the productive class. And that that falls down on everyone. Excuse me. More people producing produces more value, more innovation, lowers prices, increases quality of life. And it's just that tiny little shift. But I think it will have profound impact long term. Uh, no, it's going to fundamentally change the world. And it's funny, we were saying this in the very beginning, right? So you all kind of reach the same conclusion. The way that I say it is that Bitcoin insulates capitalism from political, from, from politics in a way, right? And I think that's what it fundamentally is. And it's unfortunate because a, a large percentage of the youth in, in, you know, a lot of these, specifically in the Western countries, they inherently know something is wrong. Right. And it, it, the system's so broken that they're like, look, it has to be the economic system, which is a tragedy. Right. We, we know that, you know, the alternative I, I originally come from Venezuela. Right. And this, the socialism does not work. It, 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 it breaks every single time and it's catastrophic, sends everyone to poverty. Um, but in a way, I do empathize with them because I do think that they're right, that there is something wrong. But what both political parties are so smart in doing is that it's like, listen, if we get the Republicans in charge, we will fix the issue. And then the Democrats say the exact same thing. But the entire time, no one's actually paying attention to what the fundamental issue is. The fundamental issue is, is that as long as that there's a few elite that get to create money for free that everyone else has to work for, the incentives will never be aligned. It will just it will never work. But hopefully, Brandon, and I think we're both kind of in the trenches fighting this war, right? This information war, this, this war for hearts and minds, right? It, it, it's, do you think that we're going to be able to wake enough people up before, you know, the inevitable clash happens? Because I, I think that, you know, that powerful political class, Bitcoin is a fundamental threat to their existence, to, their st to the status quo. Right. They love having that privilege. They love having that power. And, and, and I fundamentally believe that they think having that power, they can do what's best for everybody else. Yeah, man, I think you absolutely nailed that. And to, to underline the point with young people today. Right. You look around and you see uh, a bleak future. You see. You see no hope. Young people think that the boomers just sort of like sold the future. Uh, for their own benefit, the planet's going to die. Capitalism is the problem, right? That's the conclusion. People think we have to get rid of capitalism and and go to communism, socialism, something like that. And that is a huge mistake, right? I empathize with how they got there, but it's totally wrong. 
And I had similar thoughts, full, you know, full disclosure, 2015, 2016, that time period, I thought Bernie Sanders was the right approach. Um, I made the same mistake. And the real problem is something more like monetary socialism. So uh, a central banking uh, system at the, the center of economics, or you could call it cronyism or corporatism, right? Where we essentially just prostitute out all the laws to whoever has the most economic power. And that's not markets. That's not capitalism. And my, my response here is that um, markets are how value is created. The fact that we can sit on Twitter and complain about capitalism from Brooklyn with our MacBook and lattes, that's because of capitalism, right? Socialism doesn't create value um, and it's not an efficient process. So I think we need to um, be mindful of young people. I think we need to reteach the value of markets and you know, are we able to do it or is it going to be too late or is nobody going to care? I think that's an important question. And the more I used to think all we have to do is tell people about Bitcoin and and explain it intellectually and people will learn. Uh, maybe that's because I learned that way or at least I try to. But I think the reality is pain is the most powerful teacher. I don't like this, but it is true. And right now, what most people are figuring out is that and you can't print energy. Um, energy is physics. Your platitudes do nothing to energy markets. And people in Europe especially are finding out that their electricity bill is going up a lot. Oh, weird. Increased energy costs equals increased food. Oh, weird. Germany can't even afford their own manufacturing companies anymore because those companies can't afford the energy inputs to produce their goods. So 100 to 300 year old companies in Germany are closing down because this economic shock is too great for them, meaning energy prices. And so I think the first lesson is we're going to learn that energy is uh, foundational to society. As we experience that pain as individuals, we will say, okay, maybe solar panels uh, aren't going to save us. Maybe we should keep our nuclear plants on and maybe produce a bunch more, right? So reality is going to interface with humans. We're going to be more smart with energy. I think the same is true with money. And I think we saw a little bit of this during um, the COVID period, right? We got the stimmy checks and everybody's YOLOing GameStop and whatever. Um, I don't think they learned the lesson. I think that they deep down inside felt like something was off. They have no future. So they're just gambling. It's like, I'm already poor. I'm either going to shoot the moon on Dogecoin or fuck it. We're just going to just party and burn this thing to the ground. And I think this decade, it's going to be a slow process of people waking up to the fact that their savings accounts aren't working. Uh, there's nowhere safe to put their money. They're getting poorer every day. Inflation over time really matters. And as people are realizing that, one by one, they will look around and they'll say, huh, maybe I should look into this Bitcoin thing. And that's the role of our decentralized education marketing engine. That is the Bitcoin. That is the Bitcoiners. Um, when people are ready, it's our job to convert them quickly, onboard them fast. You know, speak in their language so they understand it. Um, right when, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Okay, so show lightly. Right. Essentially, I'm saying don't go try to convince people that aren't ready to learn about Bitcoin. When they're ready, they'll get it quickly and they'll adopt it fast. Other than that, you're wasting your time and energy. That's my belief. Um, and we look at adoption cycles. One last quick thing. When we look at adoption cycles over time, it started with a bunch of cypherpunks, uh, libertarians, developers, like really, really weird people by society standards. 
It's this tiny little hot nucleus in the middle. And then the first hype cycle occurs and it starts attracting a little bit more reasonable people. Um, this might have been like more mainstream libertarians or people who are on slashed out, like the average coders who maybe think outside the box. They join. 2017 comes. It's like people who are one foot in the matrix, one foot out. And each time these adoption cycles grow, there's more surface area on the outside of the Bitcoin network. And the narratives are more relatable to, to more normal people. Right. So each expansion phase, we refine our narrative. It gets watered down. It's more approachable. And I think that's where we are now is just we just finished another hype cycle where all the celebrities got confused with NFTs and whatever. Um, and most people will leave from that period. They'll, they'll tuck their tail between their legs. Oh, that's all a scam. My bad. Um, but a percentage of people stay and those people become um, hardcore and they become part of the nucleus that, that continues to grow. And so. Pain is the teacher and pain is coming. So people will learn. A hundred percent. I fundamentally agree with you. And this and this is a perfect segue to one of your other pieces, right? Uh, Bitcoin and the rhymes of history, right? And you, Brandon, were actually one of the people that introduced me to the idea of the fourth turning, right? And just to simplify it, right? It's this very simple idea. I'm sure you guys have seen the memes. Memes are such a great way of conveying information quickly. Um, weak men create hard times, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men. And I, I had the pleasure and, and privilege to have uh, Lawrence Lepard on the show, and he's a big believer in the fourth turning as well. And he was basically making an argument how the millennial generation, and Brandon, looks like you and I are roughly around the same age, uh, we fall into the hero archetype, right? We, we are living through weak men have created hard times and hard times, in my fundamental belief, is that hard times are creating strong men, right? The, the truth is important. It, it's not so much about the feelings. It's not so much about, look, this is, you know, the empathy. It's like, look, we, we don't have the luxury of thinking that way. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's created the time that we are today. And, and I've, I've talked to Opti about this for, for, for many, many, many times we've had this conversation where, in a way, um, Brandon, our generation is a, is a little bit more militant, man, because we we don't have an alternative, right? You were talking about your experience with um, your Bernie Sanders supporter because you fundamentally believed, look, this 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 isn't okay. I I I can't afford anything. I can't afford a home, right? So is is this the fourth turning, right? Are are we are we in the middle of it? I the, the I I really believe it began 2016. Um, Donald Trump got elected and holy crap, that just threw a bunch of stuff on, you know, on the grill and then bro, everything just started getting crazy. And then the pandemic hit and then, you know, all of these institutions that we once believed had our best interest turned out to be frauds, you know, and in the case of the United Nations, they released an article, a paper saying we must de-incentivize the adoption of Bitcoin in developing countries. They mention they don't mention inflation. The IMF going out, going above and beyond to dictate what a sovereign country can can and cannot do, right? And I think our perceptions of all of these institutions, which we're seeing crumbling before our eyes, are dying, man. You know, and it's crazy. So, what 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 were your thoughts on writing this piece, and how does Bitcoin incorporate into all of this? Yeah, totally. Um, do we have like an hour to answer that one? 
Oh Just man, kidding. we I'll have, go, go we have roughly 20 minutes. <laughs> All right, I'll go fast. Um, on your first point, why can people not see it, right? Why is the New York Times directly saying developing countries should not adopt Bitcoin? The, the answer is the opposite is true. Of course they need Bitcoin. They need it way more than you and I do, but they can't see it. So they're, they're just acting against uh, reality. And I think the reason why is because paradigm shifts are really hard for humans. Change is hard. And so the New York Times represents the previous era, the previous paradigm, and they're not, they're not embracing what's coming. And so they just, they literally can't see it. They're incentivized not to see it. They don't want to see it. Their worldview is built up around not seeing it. And so they just act crazy. Um, okay, next point. Why did I write this essay? What's the point of this thing? Like maybe March, April, May, 2020, um, we're in COVID lockdown. I'm losing my mind. What's going on? This all sucks. Um, I don't trust the central powers, you know, pulling the, uh, ringing the emergency bell and then seizing all this power. And so I was in kind of a shitty place, to be honest. And I started reading like crazy, trying to make sense of the world. And in that manic phase, I essentially came across the fourth turning book. Uh, I probably read 20 books in like three months. That book essentially was the most, uh, most true or felt the most right um, or had the most exp explanatory power for the world that we were living in. And so I started studying history, cycles, how does it all fit in? And that essay is what came out of that. Uh, I'm very proud of that one, by the way. It's also long. Um, the big thesis here is that histories and generations are symbiotic, right? Bringing up that symbiosis word again. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you and I are both millennials. We're of this generation. We're all born at roughly the same time in roughly the same context. We all sort of respond the same way to things in the world relative to other generations who may respond totally different than us, right? And we all grow up as that well-defined generation. And then we become adults. And then we start to push back on the world. We influence the world. So that's generations, you and I creating history, impacting the world. And then history changes because we imprinted it. And then the next generation grows up in the context that we brought into the world. And then that generation grows up and pushes back on history. So history, generation, generation, history. Uh, that's sort of at the bedrock of the whole thesis. Then what the authors observed, and by the way, this is a book published in the late 90s, the same year as a sovereign individual, mm. interestingly. And what they found is that society, at least in Western in the Western world, looking at the history of America, it revolves in these roughly 80-year cycles. And at the end of that cycle, which is where we are now, the world wakes up and then we realize that our institutions are crumbling, you know, uh, government, um, institutions like business, our monetary system, healthcare, schools, whatever institution, they're starting to crumble and we realize that shit, we actually need these institutions. They perform an uh, important role in complex society and we can't trust them. They're broken. It's almost as if um, 80 years prior-ish on the heels of World War II, which is when we created the World Bank, the IMF, Social Security, um, unemployment insurance, NATO, um, Bretton Woods, right? All of these things that more or less define our world order. Uh, that all came in roughly like an eight-year period at the end of the last cycle. And then things are pretty good in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They start to decline. And now our old institutions are just hollowed out. They're corrupt. They're, they're crumbling. Essentially, culture advanced really fast. Institutions advance really slow. So there's a mismatch. And now we're in that chaotic period where our institutions suck, but we need them. 
And it's almost as if humans have this uh, instinctual reaction to the world not going well. And the instinct is actually to collectivize. And so that's why socialism explodes during fourth turnings. The same in the 30s. Um, marginal tax rates were like 70% in the 30s. And we created all these socialist programs like FDIC or unemployment insurance, et cetera. These are responses to the world starting to crumble. And so what we're seeing young people do today, especially millennial, is they're collectivizing and they're saying, we got to save the environment. We got to screw the boomers. We got to um, literally calling each other comrades unironically uh, with no, no shred of irony. Um, and so what we need to do with regards to Bitcoin is the, the instinct is collectivized. If we go too far collectivizing, um, we're going to go into a panopticon, CBDC, dystopian hell, and most millennials will walk right into that. Now, I'm optimistic simply because we have Bitcoin, which is a perfect, perfect counterforce to CBDCs, but it's also a type of institution itself. And what we need is to rally around a big idea with a big tent that a lot of people can get around that seems to be the answer to our problems. And I think it's pretty clear that Bitcoin solves uh, maybe not everything, but it's probably the strongest force for good right now in the world. And I think people are starting to realize that. And juxtaposing normal people who are not optimistic about the future, borderline nihilism, short-termism, fiat culture, whatever you want to call it, compared to Bitcoiners, long-term thinking, building families, treating our bodies right, uh, et cetera. Um, that's a huge contrast. And when people interact with Bitcoiners, they, they, they can't help but notice. It's, it's a very, very powerful feeling. And that's why Bitcoin conferences are so fun. That's why Bitcoin meetups are so fun. It's fulfilling this deep desire to be a part of something great. And it just so happens to be really positive, optimistic, supportive, and um, has a genuine vision for the future that might be true. And so you add all that up and typically at the end of fourth turnings, there is a hot war. Um, okay, so we are steering towards ultimate conflict and that conflict has to be big enough to rally everyone together to make a major change. Then the dust will settle and then we'll rebuild with new institutions. Previous fourth turning was World War II. Um, previous uh, one before that was the Civil War. Before that, Revolutionary War. And so the question is, are we going into another hot war? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's entirely possible. Um, tensions with China or some sort of tensions that occur as we're starting to deglobalize. By the way, we've been deglobalizing for over a decade. And so that's going to cause a lot of issues because the whole global order, the, all the economies are built on this cheap, uh, lowering interest rates, globalists, search for low uh, cost of labor to then allow the developing countries to build our stuff and then developed countries to import the stuff. And that system's all breaking. And so there's going to be winners and losers there. And I think there's a, a good chance we do end up in a hot war somewhere. However, that's not a guaranteed situation. And I think Bitcoin is a counterforce to potential hot war. And the reason is simple. Bitcoin acts as a shield against tyranny. At the individual level, let's say you grow up in Venezuela, your currency is collapsing, the government's super corrupt, um, assets being seized. Well, what if you could store a little bit of your wealth in Bitcoin or memorize 12 words and cross the border into Colombia and start a new life with your nest egg, right? So that essentially at the individual level, it allows you to save yourself 
and reduce the, the pressures on yourself. So individuals become less desperate. Same, same issue with countries. If El Salvador goes all in on Bitcoin and five years from now turns out they're right, um, they're going to look really good. And that country might leapfrog its competitors because they save themselves with this tool that's essentially in the new paragraph paradigm right the old ship sinking get on the life raft that idea and on net i think that as bitcoin spreads enough people are going to save themselves that the the desire to go to war which should be a last result a last resort i think that incentive to go to war declines over time enter the life raft everyone's invited um, the more people who join the life raft the better it is and that incentive for war declines every time. And so I view this sort of as a race. Um, it's a race to onboard people to a new system before it gets so bad in the old system um, that we resort to violence. Maybe it's inevitable that we resort to violence, but at least we have Bitcoin to, to allow people to, to save themselves. So in, it's interesting because I, I, I said the same thing. I, I actually asked this question to, to Mark Moss during, uh, during the panel, Brandon. I said, that you know we were talking about a monetary reset and one of the tools that countries have used for these monetary resets coincidentally is happening during the fourth turning is they use a kinetic war but the question that i have for you brandon and it wasn't me who said this i i got this off twitter but in two and i'm going to use the example of 2003 in 2003 if social media was a thing do you think that the united states have would have gone to war with iraq because now, right, we're kind of living through this era where in, the information is being disintermediated. They're freaking out. The Biden administration reacted with Ministry of Truth. You see the fact checkers, you know, they're freaking out. They're losing this, this monopoly on the information. Um, but at the same time, what's also happening is the disintermediation of money. They're also losing their monopoly on the issuance of money. So is a kinetic and we all know, right, that, you know, uh, Ron Paul has that famous quote, right? It's not a it's it's not a coincidence that the bloodiest history, the bloodiest century in human history is the century of central banking. Right. Is it possible to have a large scale kinetic war if you have. Into millions upon individuals, millions upon millions of individuals communicating directly with each other, right? Which is what social media and the internet has enabled. And is it possible for governments to do this also once they start to lose, once they start to lose more and more and more of their control on money, right? So is that a possibility? Could this change things? Because I agree with you. You know, if you look at the Revolutionary War, if you look at you know the Civil War, if you look at World War II. The government controlled the money, right? It, 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 and and you and think about it. People got their information from a handful of newspapers, a handful of 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 you know radio stations, TV stations. Now it's totally different. So that gives me a little bit of hope, but maybe I'm naive. Yeah, I think the the line of question is certainly valid and warranted. I, I think I'll, I'll share my opinion on this. So. First off, when the state or when anyone gets desperate, that's a recipe for danger, right? You don't want to fight someone who has nothing to lose. You don't want to fight a dog foaming at the mouth backed into a corner, right? They're going to fight to the last breath. And I think what we're seeing with the state is a little bit of flailing, right? I think they have the, they're aware that they're losing control of the memetic game. They're losing control of the money. They're losing control of information. That's one way to look at this. 
Um, the other way to look at this is that the internet is not acting as a tool for decentralized information right now. During COVID, what happened was the state loaded up the information propaganda machine and it got people to do crazy shit and they believed it. And if you didn't follow along with the latest thing, you were socially ostracized and they're very successful with that movement. So I think the internet right now is actually at a point of increasing centralization. And I think over time that, that pendulum starts to swing as we innovate, like, I think it's always an arms race. The state wants to uh, keep wraps on communications. The people want to keep it free. But it always comes down to technology. It always comes down to asymmetric technology. And I think what we need to do on the information warfare is we need to evolve past these Web2 platforms. Um, the Twitter fact checkers and the, you know, deplatforming any doctor who said something out of consensus. That was extremely effective, even though it was super obvious to the people paying attention. And we all chatter and we talk in our side groups, whatever. En masse, they own the narrative. And that's fucking terrifying. Sorry for swearing. Um, so I think what we need to do is replace Web2 platforms with protocols for information, right? This is Jack's vision of Blue Sky, um, a, dis a, a decentralized backend with a unlimited amounts of front end. That's the only way to do information that I can see. So if we can do that, then I think we can win back the information warfare. Um, the next question, could we go to war now? The answer is yes. We're, we're at war with Ukraine. We're sending them bajillions of dollars. Uh, Ukraine flags are everywhere. And so I would say that people are failing uh, this pathetic PSYOP. That's what I observe. Um, but long term, I am optimistic because I think we will replace Web2. Now, the, the other question with money, I think it's on the long term, if we take money out of central banking hands and give it back to the people in a Promethean sense, I think that will allow humans uh, to have less mass conflict because the leaders would have to ask nicely to go to war because they can't abuse their money printer. And if you said in 2003, hey, uh, I think the stat for Iraq war was like fifty to $60,000 per person. That's what the, the, the government spent. If the U.S. says, hey, do you want to spend 50 grand to send our children to a country you can't find on a map and kill a bunch of brown people and you want to vote? Obviously, we're not going to war. So they have to stage weapons of mass destruction, which we know is a lie, right? They have to create context and narrative warfare to convince us that it's the right thing to do. Um, but we didn't know how much it was going to cost, and we would have never signed up if we knew the accounting up front. But on a Bitcoin standard, if the money's out of their control, they would have to say, hey, can we tax you a certain amount to go to war? And as soon as that right back to pain as a teacher, that's pain on people's pocketbooks. And then you might do your accounting and you might say yes or no. Um, I'm not Pollyannish here. I'm not against war. I think there are times when it makes sense. But allowing the state to cause wars anytime they ding the bell of emergency, that is madness. And Bitcoin fundamentally removes that um, the low barrier of entry for governments to abuse their power. And so short term, we're going to war. Bitcoin's not ready. Long term, we'll take back information. We'll take back money. Uh, but it might take a decade. Okay. So Brandon, last question. And that was a great response and perfect segue into this, right? If you take away the information from the state, if you take away the money from the state, and you know, the sovereign individual made a very good case for this, right? The state is forced 
to 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 look at the relationship it has with individuals. This kind of, you know, you're a tax cattle. You belong to me, you dirty surf into kind of like you're my client here. Come is a good place to do business. You should you should set up shop here. Do you, do you believe? And of course, you know, you know how people have this the collectivist utopia. I also think libertarians have a libertarian utopia, right? Is it is it a dream? Is it a pipe dream? Do you actually believe that dude they they're capable of the most atrocious in fact, they are responsible for some of the most atrocious things that that happened in the last century. Will they allow this to happen or kind of tie this in what we were talking about in the in the beginning with the mycelian? Are they just don't have it? They don't. They don't have it. They don't have the metaphorical head to chop off here. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't think the state wants to give up control. I think that's obvious, right? But I think over time, technology uh, essentially overrides political desires, and I think this is one thing that Satoshi, or maybe it was early cypherpunk, I can't remember, but essentially early Bitcoin ideology, which essentially says that. Either we try to play the political games and vote harder, baby, and then we'll get what we want. Or we create technology that gains us an advantage against the state. And I think Satoshi said this might not solve all the world's paraphrasing. This might not solve all the world's problems, but it will give us a temporary advantage in the arms race against the state. Right. And I think that's the right way to look at this. It's a never ending arms race back and forth, state, people, state, people, centralized, decentralized. Right. And I think this is just the, the latest battle in that. I think a lot of libertarians and especially Bitcoiners would say that we're going to enter this period of never ending prosperity because we won this battle, uh, taking money out of the hands of the state. And I think that's an OK starting point here. I think we want to send that message that it's going to get better because of that. But I think the idea that we do this once and it's over is totally naive. Um, Matt Ridley, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called The Red Queen, which is looking at biology in the same way. And essentially, the takeaway is that, excuse me, um, as soon as a organism creates an advantage in their environment, the, the ecosystem around it quickly adapts and that advantage is nullified. So then the, that individual has to create a new advantage, which then gets quickly nullified, right? It comes from the Red Queen in uh, Alice in Wonderland. You run so fast and you stay in the same, you got to run really fast just to stay in the same place, right? Um, and that's kind of like what's going on here with the, the arms race against the state. Um, we buy some time with Bitcoin and hopefully we buy a lot of time and hopefully it's really hard to stop. And I think it's, one of the hardest things to stop that we've ever come across. And so I am very optimistic about the amount of time it buys us, but I don't think forever is coming. Um, so that means we need more than Bitcoin and our future generations will have different battles to fight. And um, we need to preserve the spark of freedom um, and individual thinking and preserve markets in order to have a good chance to fight. Right. Cause if, if we end up in this panopticon social credit system, like where China's heading um, it makes dissent really hard, right? And so thinking about the sovereign individual, I think there's an important role here to play because we're entering that encroaching centralization. The West sees China's power through their CBDC and they go, ooh, we want that. That'll be very helpful for us. 
And so we're, we're watching a, a CBDC pilot going out out of uh, the Fed New York this week or next week, um, something like that. They just announced it. So the walls are closing in. And if we look at the sovereign individual, they're essentially saying that as technology allows individuals to uh, free ourselves from geography, meaning we can work remote, our money's online, our communication's online. We don't really have to be in the U.S., right? The digital nomad movement is kind of an early uh, example of what's to come. And if that's true, Bitcoiners potentially will be a part of this movement. We might colonize remote territory, throw a nuclear reactor there, mine Bitcoin with the excess energy, give cheap power. Um, it, it sort of allows us to create startup cities around energy assets that are, aren't connected to um, existing political structures. And if that is true, we might go from, let's say, 200 countries to 2,000 countries. Um, and more countries that are smaller, I think, is good. Um, that creates competition and competition creates innovation. And Matt Ridley, again, my uh, one of my favorite authors in his most recent book on innovation, he essentially studies what makes a nation prosperous. And what he found was that uh, prosperity comes from innovation and innovation comes from freedom. So the most open and free countries produce the most innovation and the most innovation produces the most prosperity. What is Bitcoin? Um, Bitcoin is freedom money. Bitcoin literally empowers the individual at the expense of any would-be oppressor. So Bitcoin is a precursor to freedom, which is a precursor to innovation, which is a precursor to prosperity. And so I view these startup cities, sovereign individuals, thesis, citadels, uh, whatever you want to call this, as a crucial part of the next phase of our species, which is preserving the spark of freedom long enough to get through this uh, CBDC Panopticon experiment so that we have um, intelligent people, highly organized and able to innovate um, on the back end of this period. Because, yeah, it's an arms race and I'm optimistic with Bitcoin. Without Bitcoin, I would very much not be optimistic. So, um yeah, just a little responsibility. <laughs> Oof, yep, and um, goes to, but at, at the end of the day, right, Brandon, it's per, this revolution, this peaceful revolution is not possible without personal responsibility. And I, and I, but I do believe that we, we do have a good chance. We do have a good shot. We, we have incentives on our side and all they have is coercion. Um, and we have to innovate faster than they can regulate, man. And uh, let's see, uh, let's see where the cards fall. Anyways, Brandon, this was an absolute honor and a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Why don't you tell everybody where they could find you and uh, any projects or any things that you're working on nowadays? Yeah, I appreciate that, Nico. This was a great interview. Um, your last couple sentences were just on point. Um, you can find me on Twitter, B Q U I T T E M. Otherwise, all my writing is at brandonquidham.com. Um, I run comms for Swan. Um, if you want to get started there, you guys know where to go. Swan.com slash Quidam. We'll give you 10 bucks free for creating an account. No purchase necessary. Um, and then we mentioned it earlier, but we're releasing some early bird tickets to Pacific Bitcoin 2023. PacificBitcoin2023.com. Get your ticket there. They'll be sold out probably by Friday, if not sooner. Um I think that's it. If any of this resonated, send me a DM on Twitter. Um, my DMs are open. Awesome. Appreciate Thank it, you. Man. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And yes, Simply Bitcoin will be back at Pacific Bitcoin next year. Hope to see all of you guys out there.
Anyways, Brandon, I'm going to put you backstage for a second, wrap this out. Guys, we're going to be back with the regular show tomorrow at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We love you all. We will see you later.